When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Age of Radio. Listening to Texas History Lessons, a slow walk through Texas history made in Texas by a Texan for everyone, everywhere. Welcome, to Texas History Lessons. I'm Michael, and I am very happy to be welcoming back Melvin E. Edwards. He was most recently on the show to talk about his first book, The Eyes of Texans From Slavery to the Texas Capitol personal stories from six generations of one family. And it was a really, really great book. We talked about it in depth on that. Melvin is back with us today to talk about his new book, The Strength of a Thousand Sons. Now, Melvin, for those that haven't listened to the earlier episode or familiar with you, you've had a pretty varied career growing up in Houston, starting out as a sports writer and we're going to get into that because you talk about that and the influence of your father and the things he did growing up with you that helped shape you. And, you know, you, you've done a lot of things, including working for state senators, worked for the office of the lieutenant governor. You've known, was it three or four people that have run for president you talk about in the book? Rick Perry, George Bush. Martin O'Malley in, New, in Baltimore, Maryland. Okay. Governor of Maryland. When we last talked about like I said, the eyes of Texans, which you have this quality of writing that you're able to pack a lot into it. You weren't necessarily considering writing this book that you have just published when we last talked. You want to talk about the process that you went through when you ended up what led you to do this book instead of what we talked about before? Well, uh, by the way, I'm, I'm honored to be on. Thanks for, thank you for inviting me again. Uh, I'm looking forward to, to this discussion. But uh, the process for me for writing is a lot of it's just inspirational. So um, I had over the course of the 30 years I was researching for the first book, I collected about as much as I thought I could find at the time on my dad's family. Mm-hmm. And, then I, and then I found a couple of new pieces of information that um, tied it more together for me. So I thought I'm, I need to write this and when I'm inspired to write something, I have to write at that moment because I'm really afraid of losing the thoughts that I have. My wife can tell you that it sometimes drives her crazy because I might wake up at three o'clock in the morning with an idea and I get up 
and go into my office and start writing because I, I know how my brain works. Mm, right, <laughs> and right. when I've got an idea that I think is good enough, I want to put it down before I forget because I've had plenty of ideas before when I was younger and I thought this idea is so good. There's no way I'm ever going to forget it. Mm-hmm. And then, and then a day or so later, it's gone forever. Right. I identify with that. I, that's why I obsessively keep notes and notebooks filled with things that I do not want to forget because the old memory doesn't necessarily work quite as well as yeah. we hope. In the previous book, you talked about the, your other family line. In this book, you focus on the Edwards family and you go back all the way. You have that trace all the way back to Penn Edwards, who was born in 1842 in Republic of Texas. I have to assume this was not necessarily an easy book because you write partly from your father's voice and Mm -hmm. deal with the hardships that he faced with his father. Absolutely. It was the first chapter, especially was heartbreaking to write. This is a story I've known since I was six or seven years old. And I really don't believe he ever told anybody else. And so I've been carrying this around forever. And I thought, this is, if I'm going to tell the story, I need to tell this part of the story too, or the rest of it won't fully make sense. But it, it probably took me three days to write the first chapter. And it, I cried all three days right. and probably a couple, probably a couple of days afterwards. It was, it was pretty intense. And I, I even though it's been so long, even my dad died boy, over 40 years ago, right? but it still seems fresh because um, knowing him, knowing what a kind hearted person he was and the fact that he went through this still, still hurts. I, I, I would, couldn't understand it. I wanted to try to understand it better, but I also wanted to try to understand how somebody could go through that kind of trauma and still turn out to be as kind and loving as he turned out to be. And so that's why I decided to, to tackle the story from that perspective. Well, it's very moving. It is powerful to see the transition that your father underwent and how he passed things on to you that are positive as opposed to the way he grew up. And they always say when you, when you're writing, rule of thumb is catch him at the very beginning, make it something that is going to spark the interest. And I got to tell you, you did that at the very opening chapter when you writing from your father's point of view. You say the line, my worst day was trying to kill my daddy. And you had me hooked right then. You then go through and tell his history. You have a lot of family history packed in here, but you also do a good job of putting in context of what was going on and how that affected the lives of people and your family at that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one of the things that struck me, though, was the importance of voting. You know, I talk to a lot of people, and a lot of people I know don't even bother voting. They think it's a waste of time. But you made a this part in the book about your parents when they got the right to vote. They didn't waste that opportunity and sit around. Could you comment a little bit about that that memory of oh, yours? Yeah, absolutely. That the voting was sacred to them because, as I mentioned in the book, they were in their thirties before they had the opportunity to vote the first time. The Voting Rights Act passed, uh, went into effect in 1965, late August of 1965. And that was the first time they were able to vote. And my mom was 
31, my dad was 36. And they took it seriously, but they also considered it risky and dangerous. Mm-hmm. So they never, they never talked about it and they never really talked about it. It's certainly not out loud to each other because I can remember them being, being at home and, and having them say they're, they're going to go to the, the precinct to vote. And they would come back and I would say, who'd you vote for? I would be like maybe eight or nine years old and say, who'd, who'd you vote for? And they would say, well, I, I can't talk about it. And obviously that had an impact on me. Um, I knew it was something that was, voting was something that was serious. And even if it was risky, it was still worth it. And so from that point on, it was, it became something that became a, a huge part of my life. And I, I never anticipated ever being a part of the political process in Texas from the inside. Mm-hmm. But that certainly began, it sparked my interest in politics and, and it went from there. But the idea of voting, uh, obviously one person, one vote is something that is, is, is taken pretty seriously in this country to the point where people who don't want um, others to have representation will do whatever it takes to try to either take away the vote, uh, minimize the impact of the vote, or intimidate you to keep you from voting, or what, whatever it might take. And that, to me, tells you just how serious it is. Mm-hmm. And the lesson I learned from my parents is, even if it's risky, it's still worth it. That's one of the things that you learned from watching them. Did that help guide you in any way when you became involved with politics? Oh, absolutely. It was... I wasn't just voting for somebody to represent me in whatever position it may have been, whether it's local, state, or federal. I was also representing my parents. Right. And and so uh, when I wrote that chapter of this book, it's the shortest chapter on purpose. Mm-hmm. Because I wanted it to be, I wanted it to have a quick, immediate, lasting impact on the reader. Like this isn't just something you do every four years. And then you move on and then you wait for the next election cycle, presidential election cycle, four years later. This is something that impacted people's lives. And to get to that point and to not give it up, I I wanted people to feel the experience of my parents getting up, going to vote, and then, and then coming back home and, and sort of being a weight off of their shoulders. Right, right. That's uh, that's another reason I really encourage people to get this book because of that message. And that was a powerful, even though it was a short chapter, it's a powerful chapter, as is pretty much everything in the book. You cover, like us said before, you cover a lot. After you get through the part from your father's perspective, you come in and you also talk about how his relationship with you was so important. Sadly, you did not get to have him for long, but you've carried him with you always. And one of the big things was fishing and baseball. You want to comment a little bit about how that has impacted you so much and also how it's helped shape. You talk a lot about your son in the book also. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Well, baseball and and fishing are a a lot alike in that the pace of both can be very slow at times and then they could be frenetic or for moments at a time and then they can slow down again and but those times give you an opportunity to to talk 
And so with my dad, um, we would go fishing. We would drive to Galveston or Texas City, somewhere down on the on the Texas Gulf Coast, and and we'd get up really early because apparently fish get up early. That's what, <laughs> what was the lesson there. Fish get up earlier than you normally do, so you got to go get up early too. And so we'd go down, we'd fish, and we would talk. And he would tell me things that didn't make sense to me at the time. Mm-hmm. And then this happened too when we would go to baseball games. Um, we would talk. He would tell me about driving. Giving, giving me verbal driving lessons when I was seven or eight years old. Thinking it's going to be a long time to park drive or going to a baseball game and, and making, um, giving me a life lesson while we were sitting there watching the Astros bat or watching an infielder come in to get ready for that bat. Just something mundane. He would tell me a story that had an impact later on. And I didn't realize as a kid that that was what his intention was that he was preparing me either directly or indirectly for life without him Mm -hmm. but he still managed to build up the legacy so that he had an impact even though he wasn't there so when i was a teenager as he died when i was 13 so Mm -hmm. i was in the eighth grade and going into high school um my sort of natural inclination was to be a little more rebellious than I had been. But then I would hear his voice and then I would think your mother doesn't deserve this or some, some other lesson he may have given me. Mm-hmm. And and it was like, he was there disciplining me without physically being there. And those messages were so clear that I didn't want to do anything that was going to disappoint him. Right. And it, and it and it didn't really matter that much that he wasn't physically there. He was spiritually there. He was emotionally there, mm-hmm. and and the connection hadn't hadn't died with him. So everything that he had said, I recalled, and it got me through a lot of different situations. And I'm I'm thankful for that. And I I wanted in, in this story, I wanted to relay that message. But I was thankful for my dad. Essentially, the book is a, a love letter to him. Mm-hmm. But I also wanted to encourage fathers to be more intentionally involved in their kids' lives. And not that they would ignore their daughters, but there was a certain kind of connection that fathers and, and sons have that I think is too often overlooked, except in a sporting scenario. Mm-hmm. So, um, and lots of boys and teenagers don't play sports. And I, I would hope that their fathers wouldn't be, wouldn't consider them a disappointment. They just have a different personality or they have a different talent or whatever it may be. And I want men to take the roles of being a mentor to their kids. And I've, I've coached a lot over the years. I've seen men who, to be blunt, they were not the best to their own son and they were better to other people's kids who they coached than they were to their own kids. And I think that's totally unfair. And I hope, I hope it's an opportunity for men to grow and for, for young men, teenagers to learn a lesson that can carry them over into adulthood when they have a family of their own. It's very power. There's a lot of wisdom shared in this book. Uh, a lot of wisdom that you learn from your father that you share with us, the readers, and I think the nature of it being a love letter comes through 
really powerfully. And, and also because your father, he had such a hard life and the way he was raised was so different. And sadly, a lot of people don't ever break that cycle of abuse and torment. But your father found the strength somewhere to do that and say, not with my son. Learning from the bad example set by his father, you were able to benefit from his decisions and it's helped shape from the what you write in the book, like you said, to the way you deal with your family and son. In addition to, I'm sure you also applied that when you were, have been coaching in life. And I think that's another important thing and why I love your writing in the book so much is because that is a message that needs to be out there because we live in a culture now where the negative and harshness is applauded by so many. Absolutely. <laughs> and unfortunately, being emotional or apologizing when you make mistakes or even admitting you make mistakes is considered a weakness. And I consider that a weakness. If you make a mistake and you don't, let's say you, you're unnecessarily harsh with your child because you had a bad day at work and you don't do something to fix that relationship with your kids and saying, I'm sorry, it was my fault. I, did, I shouldn't have taken out my bad day on you or however the situation may play out. You're teaching your kid that circumstances dictate how you treat other people. Mm -hmm. That's a terrible lesson to teach your kid. Because when you teach your kid a lesson, you're also teaching their kids a lesson eventually. And with, with my dad, he decided that, intentionally decided, he would do the opposite of what he had learned from his father. And I can't imagine how hard that must have been for him because he, everything that had been, everything was passed down. You do what you learn. People end up justifying it. It doesn't matter how harshly you were treated. You didn't die from it. So it couldn't have been that bad. And so it's okay if you repeat the cycle. And he decided he would not repeat the cycle. And actually my original working title for the book was breaking the cycle and and i thought that was a little too cliche and i wanted something that was a little more impactful and and as i was writing the first chapter when i thought of and you mentioned in the question strength it Mm. took strength for him to make those decisions and to carry out those actions so the, the strength he had was multiplied and so I wanted to use that in, a, in the title somehow. And then the strength of a thousand sons is what I came up with. And it, if you, anybody who's um, interested in reading the book, at the end of chapter one, you'll understand the context of that phrase and, and the title of the book. My dad was a, was a really good man. And I'm, I can't even fully express how thankful I am for him. That you show it in this book. It is a, it definitely is a love letter. And yeah, I don't want to give away how this comes to play the title, but I was wondering about it when I ordered the book and I got the, and by the way, compliments on the cover picture that you did. 
Thank you. And uh, the strength of a thousand suns, and you get right to it at the end of the chapter because it's pretty. It's pretty. Um, it's a chapter you're not gonna start and not finish because you want to get to the end. Um, you do a lot again. A lot of the family history is in it, but you do tie so many important issues from American history and Texas history. But one of the things that sometimes we miss out on is importance of sport to a community. And you really caught me with your discussion about when you first got to go to a baseball game and you normally would sometimes go fishing, but you really wanted to go back to the baseball. You watched a lot of good baseball and could you comment a little bit about some of the good teams you got to enjoy that you got to work there when you were very young. You, and in addition to that, that talk a little bit about the importance of the Astrodome as a place. Yeah, sir. I'd be happy to. I, I called the Astrodome in the book, my happy place. And when I, w- I went to my first baseball game there when I was about 10 years old, and I had been a few times before for rodeos, but it just seemed different for baseball. And I think partially because of how big of a baseball fan my dad was. And so we would go to, we went to the first game on a Friday night, played the San Diego Padres and the Astros lost the game. And the next morning was Saturday when we normally would go fishing and we went fishing that, that morning as, as usual. And I couldn't stop thinking about the game the night before. And I had looked up on the schedule that they were playing a doubleheader that day. And I thought, there, there can't be anything better than having two games for the price of one. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I talked my dad into leaving Galveston, going home early so we could change clothes and go back to the Astrodome so we could see a doubleheader. And thankfully he was, he was up for that. And so we saw three games within about a 24 hour period. Mm-hmm. The Astros lost all three games and it, it didn't even matter at, at that point. I was just so excited. I was hooked. As a baseball fan, and I am to this day. I watch every single Astros game. <laughs> right, so right. Spring training, spring training, the World Series. I watch every game, and it's been that way since I was ten years old. And and when I was uh, sixteen, I got my first job at the Astrodome, and my title was a press runner, and I was basically a, an errand boy. I would run errands for members of the media. And so I'd go into the press box and see what they needed. And I'd go and make copies or um, whatever was needed. Like the PA announcer um, would eat ice cream during the game, which mm-hmm. is exactly the opposite of what they teach you. I found out later on in oh, broadcasting yeah. school. <laughs> I bet. Like don't, eat, don't eat dairy products when you are <laughs> talking on a microphone because it, right. it increases saliva production. But it didn't seem to affect him. So I would mm-hmm. go and get ice cream for him during the games. And I, I had that job for about a year and a half until I, I went away to college. And then at the end of college, they, right before my senior year started, or right before the, the final semester of my senior year, I contacted the PR guy for the Astros and, sit, and asked about getting an, an internship there. And I sort of annoyed my way into the front door and, and got the interview. And, and he hired me for the summer. And that was awesome. That was, even to this day, I consider that the best job I've ever had. It was, I was 21 years old. I was sitting in the, in the, in the press box, way in the back, since I wasn't a credentialed reporter. But I was 
working for the team, again, mostly running errands, but I would write articles for the Astros um, magazine that people would buy when they came into the stadium and it would have the scorecard in it so they could do their play-by-play for themselves. So I got to meet some players. I got to um, sort of enhance my writing, and I was getting paid to watch baseball games. I was... That was my life goal, to get paid to watch baseball games, and I was doing it at 21 years old. <laughs> and then I <laughs> got an offer to, I, I met a, a sports editor at one of the, one of the games, actually at Rice University. Um, I also worked there in the sports information office, and he invited me to apply for a sports writer position at his newspaper, and I, I applied and I got the job. So I, at the age of 22, I was a fully credentialed, uh, journalist as a sports reporter and I was a member of the Texas Press Association and, and the Texas Sports Writers Association and I would again go to I covered a lot of high school sports because this is Texas and so football is the main thing and that was on Friday nights but on Saturdays or Sundays I got to go to cover an Astros game or cover an Oilers game or occasionally got to cover a Rockets game and all of those things created in me um, or, or just increased in me my, my love for writing, baseball especially. And, and one of the things I, to this day, I teach young journalism students when I have a chance to talk to them or, or almost anybody who has an interest in writing. And if you ever get the chance to write about baseball, take that opportunity. Because unlike football or even basketball, which has 82 games, but football has games once a week. You have a lot of time in between games to play out things in your mind and, and how you want to write something. But with baseball, you've got games every day mm-hmm. and you have to be creative in the way you um, retell the story. So as a baseball writer, it enhances your creativity. It teaches you to work under deadline. It teaches you like a game may end at midnight and your newspaper has a deadline at 11 o'clock. You got it. The deadline's not going to change because the game is in later. So you've got to learn to write faster. You've got to learn to be quick on your feet. And so all of those lessons I carried over um, for the rest of my life. And, and, and a lot of it had to do with the life lessons from my dad, in particular, um, the importance of meeting deadlines and, and being faithful to your word. When you say, I will do something by certain date right. or certain time, to do it. And so when I became a newspaper reporter, while other young reporters were having to learn how to work on a deadline, it came natural for me because that had been my whole life. And so even, even in that situation, my dad was, I felt like the things I learned from him were helping me. I remember growing up and I'd always, especially the Sunday edition, I live up in North Texas and we'd, I'd always get a copy of the Dallas Morning News or the Fort Worth Star Telegram. And one of the things I would do is, is like you said, I'd, I'd go to the sports section and read the recaps of different things and sometimes there'd be commentary and some of the best writing is sports writing and especially some of the, a lot of the best writing that sports writing is about baseball. Um, there's just so much in that game for some people. It's so slow and boring, but there's, there's a lot going on and it's so competitive. I remember a couple of friends in college got in a fight. One of them said, baseball is the most difficult sport and this other guy was like, no, you can't say that. Look at basketball. Look at football. And yeah, both are difficult. <laughs> but the guy's like, imagine hitting a hundred plus mile an hour 
little tiny object with a stick. The skill set of that is, it's not the same as <laughs> tackling somebody or, you know, but I, that's always kind of one of those things that stuck with me is, yeah, you, the score of the game might be 1-0, and but a lot can, is going on in that game for the nine innings or so. Um, well, yeah, absolutely. I, I always say to people who say baseball is boring, I say, come, come to a game with me. I'll sit next to me at a game and I'll, I'll show you some things that you may be looking at, but you don't know what you're seeing. Right. And once you know some of the details, some of the nuances, you will never think it's boring anymore. It, it may not always be fun, right, right. <laughs> but it's, but it's not boring. Are there any sports writers that you look back on that were influential on you when you started your career in the after or in that you just kind of look back to is that is like the epitome of good writing. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, there are two in particular who were both in the Houston area, worked for the Houston post. And I think one of them might've gone over to the Houston Chronicle eventually when the post was bought out. But um, Kenny hand was my favorite writer. And when I was a kid, um, I would sit on the front porch. I was such a nerd. <laughs> I would sit on the front porch in my house. The, the Post was a morning paper, mm-hmm. and the Chronicle was an afternoon paper. So the, we we would we had a subscription to the Houston Post, and I would sit outside before sunrise, waiting for the Post to be thrown so I could get it and read the sports section. And I would always read Kenny Hand's um, version of of the game story. And I met him when I was working that internship I had for the Astros, I, I got to meet him. And, and actually, we're Facebook friends to this day. And I've, I've thanked him several times for um, inspiring me to become the kind of writer that I became. But I was also, that's as generally just a sports stories, game recap, recaps kind of stories. But Mickey Herskowitz was also a writer for in Houston at that time. And he was a feature writer. He actually um, ghost wrote Nolan Rice's Okay. when he was with the Astros. And no, Mickey Herskowitz was such a colorful writer that you could see in your mind exactly what he was talking about, even if it was a situation you had never physically seen before because of how vivid he told stories. And that's something I wanted. I, I, I still, I think I'm much better at it now, but I still have a ways to go before I think I've reached his level. I recommend everybody oh, getting not only the Eyes of Texans, but also get this one because they're good companion pieces. Do you have any advice for people that are, if you're interested in tracking your family's history, genealogy, mm-hmm. do you have starting points for people? Well, just start with whatever you know. Um, so with some people, like with me, when I started, I knew my maternal grandparents and not much else. And so I just started there and I, I got information. I tried to find out dates of their parents or names. And then as now it's easier than it's ever been before because of sites like ancestry.com. Mm-hmm. But at the time I started, I was having to literally go to a public library. One of the, thankfully for me, the one of the largest genealogy libraries in the world happened to be in the same city where I lived mm-hmm. in Houston. And and it was a public library, so all the all the books were free so I could go there and, and and check out things and get nuggets of information here and there. And 
one of the lessons I that it, t- it took me a long time to learn is if for advice for anybody who's going into doing genealogy research, any nugget of information you have, assume it's valuable. Mm-hmm. Because I went into it with the opposite assumption. Like, I don't know, this doesn't seem to connect with anything. And so I would just discard it. But assume it's valuable. And eventually you may find another piece that connects to it. It's just consider it a puzzle. Um, so you find a puzzle piece and then you might find another puzzle piece, but those two pieces don't go together. But if you find two more pieces, you will be able to connect them. So having the pieces in a, in a position where you can refer to them as you gain more knowledge and gain more information is invaluable. I just can't emphasize enough um, how important it is to take everything you learn, everything you hear, um, and, and use that as, as part of your, your strategy. But I also warn that if you start with just stories mm-hmm. from, from ancestors, you need to be ready to um, come to the position that the stories may not be true. Um, we know all the time we hear stories mm-hmm. that uh, people tell that, that they will 100% swear like they were there. I know it happened. They may or may not have been there. They may have heard the story enough times that they think they were there. Or they were there and they forgot an important detail. So uh, doing some research, being open to the outcome, follow, follow the trail wherever it goes. Uh, if you've got a predetermined outcome is you want to find out how many famous people were in your family. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a hard, that's a hard place to start. Right. Um, for, it's just weird to me how people assume or they, they tell stories that, Oh, I was related to King George right, <laughs> or right. George Washington. Mm. And it, it, it may or may not have been, but certainly not everybody could be related to those people. And then not everybody will be related to somebody famous. And, and it's the stories of the everyday people that are intriguing to me anyway. Mm. So, um, go find, find the evidence and, and just follow wherever it leads. One thing I've noticed. And I recently, I did it a few years ago. My wife and I started in and she went farther than I did. So it does require discipline and to do it and to keep up with it. But one thing I noticed is you can't necessarily trust. It's just like you said here. Don't necessarily be prepared to find out something you're told wasn't true. And the same time, don't necessarily trust everything you find until you can really back it up well because on ancestry i've noticed a lot of people mean well they're doing the work and it's really easy oh somebody's already done this entire family line mm-hmm. and sometimes they make they force people in i've noticed especially the farther back you go there might not really be a connection but i've seen where they well they wanted to be related to somebody on the mayflower and Everything checks out except, and I found this on, cause I, it's easy to click and say, just add this to my family tree and include it. Mm-hmm. But then I started looking, I'm like, this, this isn't adding up cause there are other resources available. So backing up and ch- double check, fact checking, everything else said that this was not true. Maybe they're correct, but everything I could find is 
it's not really real. And it's easy, especially on a website like Ancestry, they make it so easy just to click. And here's a hint. Is this your relative? Yes. Uh, I had um, someone who uh, was is a, apparently a, a genetic distant cousin who reached out to me on Ancestry. Who said, I, I just found out we're related and I saw on your profile who said you had written the book and and it mentioned Isaac Blayton, who was mm-hmm. uh, was prominent in my first book. And she said, I have this information about Isaac Blayton. And she sent it to me. And I thought, well, before in my own research, I had run across another Isaac Blayton who was from Georgia. And the, my ancestor, Isaac Blayton, was from Maryland. And so I'm assuming the one she had was the one from Georgia. Mm-hmm. But, but either way... Um, the dates didn't match up. Right. And, and so those are the kind of things that are fairly easy to check. So if, if you have a, a, on your timeline, you see that somebody was born in 1800 and then you know of a relative, you know of a relative who was born in 1805 and you start to think, well, the, the, it says the first one, the, the 1800 was the father. And if you know the second piece of information you have is correct, the new information can't be correct. Mm-hmm. It, it just takes common sense. Right, you, right. You, the person wasn't a parent at five years old right. or before or before they were born. Right. So um, you just have to follow that as a very, very basic um, starting point and then go from there. And, and sometimes it may logic, it can logically be true and still not physically be true. So it's, it's just really challenging and it takes a while. Like I've, t- I've mentioned before, it, it's taken me over 30 years of research to find just a few generations of my family. And I'm not sure I'll ever find more than that because the census records just didn't list their names. That's right. Yeah. Before 1870. So I don't, I don't know if I'll ever find more. Right. But for, for what I've got, I'm satisfied with the accuracy of it and the stories that I've gotten from it and I'm th- I'm I'm really pleased with the the two books, and I I feel like I've I've told a pretty good story from both sides of my family. Now, you really have. Um, like I said, they go well hand in hand, and they are a contribution. It, even though the focus is on your family, the history that's in there is very compelling. I want to go back to the book for one more okay. question about it. The last chapter. You have an afterword, and before that, you have the last chapter. And the title of that is The Strength of Samson. That chapter alone is, the whole book's great, but that chapter alone, you you really go after some big subjects that need discussion. People need to hear what you're saying in this. I mean, you tackle the subject of white privilege and get into the causes of racism and how is it that people want to divide us. Majority of the things we all want is taking care of our families, taking care of our future generations, and making sure everybody's safe. Absolutely. Why did you name the chapter The Strength of Samson? And you really basically went in and deconstructed and, I guess, evaluated the not only your grandfather, your father, and your, yourself in a way and try to find the causes and effects that shaped everything. 
Okay. Uh, yeah, the, the chapter is denser than the other chapters. There, there's a lot, as you mentioned, there are a lot of different topics I, I touched on. And I, my intention was to create conversations, even difficult conversations. And as, as you just alluded to, I suggested starting with something like the fact that we all want what's best for our kids, regardless of how much money you have, what race you are, uh, whatever. Everybody wants what's best for their kids. And then you have a different interpretation of what may be the best or how to get them to the best. And, and I'll also mention baseball. So there's some hobby that you have in common. So just start with something simple that you can agree on. Uh, just sort of validate each other's humanity and then figure out a way to, to dig a little bit deeper uh, with respect as the uh, the thing that, that holds it all together. Uh, I was actually influenced by you in that chapter uh, from our conversation in January. You mentioned a book that I hadn't ever heard of before, uh, The Strange Career of Jim Crow. Right. And right after we talked, I ordered that book. And, and so that book influenced that chapter. And I wanted to have an opportunity to, because I feel like some people, my old criticism of the first book was that I, I sort of let people off the hook. <laughs> okay. It was a very harsh treatment of my family. Hmm. And it wasn't my intention to fight old battles. It was my right. intention to just tell a story. This time I wanted to, again, not fight battles, but to realize, for people to realize the battles are still being fought. Right. And sometimes you have to punch back. And sometimes if you do, this is why. And so I wanted to, people to understand that, that there is a why. Um, there, there are certain aspects of racism that are very much prevalent. Some, more so right now mm-hmm. than at any time in our recent past. And, and people react to things that they've experienced or that they, their parents experienced. And it's, I, I want to create an opportunity for healing. It's mm-hmm. just really, really important to me. Lesson from my dad and, and lesson for me and my kids and, and other people I've, teenagers I've, I've coached and, and, and taught that they have somebody in their life who makes them feel safe and not just makes them feel safe, but mm-hmm. makes things safe for them. Mm-hmm. And so I want, I want people to understand that being vulnerable enough to open yourself up, to share with other people is not a weakness. It's a strength. And the, the strength of Samson, um, the, the name of the chapter comes from an allusion to the Bible, mm-hmm. the, the Samson and Delilah. And my, my grandfather's name was Samson and his name was spelled a little different. Mm-hmm. But, um, it was his physical strength that made him dangerous. But it was his weakness that was the danger to my dad. Right. And directly. Right. And so I, I wanted people to understand that. His weakness put my dad at risk, but my dad's strength was in not retaliating. Mm-hmm. So he was he was physically at a certain point he was physically stronger than his dad. He was bigger than his dad and stronger than his dad, and he didn't use that 
as an opportunity for revenge. He used it up as an opportunity for a lesson. And, and that's what I want people to carry away from the book. Like, it, it, this part of it may seem cliche, like it's not how you start, but how you finish. Right. Um, you take what you learn, you carry the, the good lessons with you, and sometimes some of the harsh lessons you, you learned, you try to figure out a way to make those make sense. And sort of like all my life, I've, I've said, so when people give you advice, uh, I know a lot of people don't want to have advice from people, but take advice from everybody. Right. And it's, I figure advice is like a buffet in a restaurant. Like there's all kinds of things laid out there for you. You don't have to take all of it. Right. You, you take you take what you want and you leave the rest for somebody else. Yeah, I think that is a very that's definitely clear in the book, and this is an important thing I took away from it. Um, you do a lot like. It is a very dense chapter, that last chapter. Uh, you do a really good fictional uh, history of somebody to show how different things over the years could affect somebody, a, a former slave, and the Jim Crow, and, you know, that all is... You, well, how did you describe it? You said... Okay, I said John and his descendants are fictional characters. They are not fixed, fictitious circumstances. Right. In fact, they're so common among African-Americans to have been the routine rather than the outlier. You did a good job in the book, sir. I appreciate it. Thank uh, you. What you've done here. And I love the quote from the C. Van Woodward uh, book, The Strange Career of Jim Crow, where you quote Martin Luther King Jr., uh, where he says, We will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process. And that's a, that's a powerful, powerful statement there too. It's a huge weight too. That, that's great. That's great advice, but it's a huge weight. Yes. To, yes. To bear some, bear a burden that you don't deserve and, and to carry that without retaliation because you're thinking of the bigger picture, the long term effect or future generations you go on to say for many white people the desire and the work required to permanently eradicate racism falls somewhere between an annoyance and a hobby for most black people the desire and the work required to permanently eradicate racism is akin to a full-time job that you hate but know you can't quit because your survival depends on it and then you make a statement about if that seems critical or you think it's critical race theory, it's critical, it's racial, and it's a fact, not a theory. That, that was just solid, solid statement there that uh, impacted me. I was actually a little bit nervous about that. <laughs> well, it's a hot topic uh, I, issue, yeah. It, it is a hot topic, and, and I'm pretty non-controversial generally, but I, I, as a writer, I feel like I have a responsibility. And if I'm going to tell a story, if I don't tell the whole story, I'm not really telling the story. So I, I felt like I needed to address this, even in passing, directly, the, the topic of critical race theory, especially here in Texas. It's it's a really hot topic. Yeah. And there are books that are being banned and, and being limited for access to for, for students when it's a lot of it is just history. Mm -hmm. And I realized that the history... History is complicated, mm -hmm. and 
you need to understand the context. You need to understand various details, various perspectives, or you're just uh, you're just learning a myth. Right. And and so it's something that's going to take a while. And I'm not sure how it looks on the other side, but right now it's pretty messy. And yes, I, I hope to be a part of the conversation. And what is a way out of this? Is it going to be, to my mind, it requires discussion, calm talk with other people that have differences and a refusal to participate in this knee jerk pigeonholing and calling people names. And, Oh, if you are on this side, therefore you are lesser than you talk about that in the book. Also the, the need of people to feel better about themselves by making other people lesser just and not that's not necessarily even a race thing sometimes it's a it could just be well people from texas always love to make people from oklahoma feel bad for not being from texas kind of thing you know and that's kind of a lot (laughs) example but it comes into real life in some very serious ways also but you know with all the weight that you deal with and all the different heavy subjects in the book the ultimate takeaway though is the power of love and kindness that you shared in the story of your father and you. And I, I really encourage everybody to read your book. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. It's again, it was a difficult story to tell, but it was an important one that I wanted to tell in a, in a unique way, a way that would, would, would be remembered. Um, people would remember it long after they read it and hopefully act upon. Mm-hmm. I mean, I talk about having difficult conversations. Uh, the difficult conversations don't have to be done in an antagonistic way. Mm-hmm. Just, but just the topic itself is, is hard to discuss for some people. And, and it's, it's easier to overlook or to just brush them aside or dismiss them. Mm-hmm. When that doesn't really fix the problem, it just creates more animosity which makes the problem more difficult to fix next time, not easier. Right, right. That's, that's very good words there. Um, the last time I had you on, we talked afterwards about you coming back on, and I wish it could have been sooner, but I'm, I'm glad that we're finally getting around to it, especially because we get to talk about your book. But you threw out a suggestion once a while back that since you you've been – You've worn many hats, including your cowboy hat that you write about in the book that you're very proud of wearing. <laughs> and, you know, a soon uh, series of episodes I'm about to do are going to be dealing with myth and history and the, what you're talking about right then. But you suggested that you could come in and because I don't think a lot of people understand or they don't pay very close attention to how things actually work. But you were there. You were present behind the scenes watching how legislation goes through. And you offered to, if you could, we're approaching an hour and I don't want to keep too much of your time, but do you want to go ahead and try to give us an insider's look at what it's like for legislation to go through? Yeah, I'd love to. Well, I'll just start out with the basics. Uh, Texas legislature only meets every other year and odd number of years. So January of 2023 coming up will be the beginning of the new legislative session. And they meet for 140 days. And, and so the, during that 140 days, it's pretty intense, especially the last, the latter half of that term. Mm-hmm. But 
where average citizens can have the most impact is outside of that 140 days. So essentially the year and a half between sessions, because that's when elected officials are out in the communities and they're looking for something to represent in the next legislative session, some bill to, to propose and, or some legislation they they want to have their name attached to, they want as their legacy. And some, some things are really, really simple. Mm-hmm. And, and those are the things that impact people's lives the most. And the average person doesn't know how much impact they can have. So right. I would strongly recommend uh, fi- first finding out who represents you in your area, um, contacting them. They're every state representative, state senator, has a district office, and then they have a state office in Austin. Mm-hmm. So if you live near Austin, you can reach several of them, whether they're your district or not, all, all, all at once. But if you just want to start with your local district, just go look, in, look online and find out who represents you where their office is, and you don't need an appointment. Uh, just go in um, and talk to them and, and say, this is an idea I have, this water district in my area needs this or that and and whatever it may be and just go in and talk to them and then they'll write down the idea if they think it'll work they'll um, propose it um, and then it gets written up as a as a bill and and then it's introduced during the session when it convened in january and then the process for the bills is pretty extensive so there are three i worked on the senate side Uh, i worked for a state senator and there are three readings for each bill before it ever comes up for a mm-hmm. vote. So you got, uh, you got first reading just to sort of get it on the record. And then you got the second reading and then you can add amendments to it. And then you got the third reading. And then after the third reading, and, and they're called readings, but they're not actually read. They just sort of vote to say, we know it's there. Um, we consider the bill having been read. And so even though they say they've read it three times because it's called a third reading, mm-hmm. some, a lot of times they haven't even read it once. Right. But, but that's where active citizens can come in. You, you don't have to be a paid lobbyist to have an impact of a lobbyist. So if a legislator wants to follow through with your idea, uh, they may need your help to do it because they've got a lot of other people or a lot of other influences telling them where to vote, what to vote for. But if you are consistent and you help them follow the process, you come to the hearings or you propose an amendment if somebody tries to gut the bill, um, whatever you have to do, they generally will appreciate that help because they can't do everything. And with 140 days, they just don't have the time. Mm-hmm. So if you're uh, someone who's civic-minded, it's, it's pretty intriguing. And I would highly recommend at the very least, coming to one or two of the sessions, and they're all, unless it's a closed executive session for something, it's, they're all open to the public. Right. There's a gallery. There's a gallery on both sides of the Texas Capitol, the House side and the Senate side, and people can come in there and watch proceedings, and then they can go back to their senator's office and, and talk to them if they want. But the, the main thing is to tell them your ideas. Mm-hmm. And then follow, and then follow through. You, you would be surprised at how much influence an average person could have just because they learn the process. And most people don't take the time to learn it. That's, that's some good information there. I recently came across, I was looking at, uh, I don't 
do Facebook very much, but I was uh, I was looking at a there's a Today in Texas History Facebook group or page, and I, a guy had posted that he had proposed a bill to make Texas State holiday for Sam Houston, and his representative had had been good enough to take his request up, and you know, but in the last session it got sent to committee and never came out, so it was considered dead. He said. But so he's, that's the, pro, the step. This guy just had an idea. He has a reason why he thinks it's, it should be done. And, you know, sometimes they go through, sometimes they don't. Whether you think Sam Houston should have a Texas holiday or not, it, it's just a matter of opinion, really. But that's how the process is. He That's what he did. He went to his representative. The representative then tried, at least. And now they're going to resubmit it uh, in the next legislature to try to get it through. And, and yeah, that's sometimes it does take a, a couple of sessions or, or maybe more than a couple. Yeah. And, and another really thing that I considered unusual when I was there was how a bill could go through three different readings, have amendments attached to it, and then get voted down or tabled. And then that entire bill, say from the Senate, could end up attached to a different bill in the House as an amendment. So you've got to a bill that's 20 pages long, usually amendments are a few sentences, but a 20 page long bill that's gone through the whole process, but didn't, wasn't successful. That ends up getting attached to another bill as an amendment. Mm -hmm. And then the process starts over in the house and then comes back and it passes. So just because something is voted down, doesn't necessarily mean it's dead. Right. Uh, So if, if something is important to you, my strong advice is to just don't give up. Just keep fighting forward, and even if you have to bring it back to another session, or wait for uh, a different, give it to a different representative. It doesn't even have to be your own representative. That's good advice. Good advice. Um, you were recently kind enough among uh, a, a surprisingly, I was surprised at how many people actually agreed to participate in my survey. And a lot of the information that I asked, some of it's kind of silly questions I asked. Some of it was very important, and a lot of it is around my roundabout way trying to, to deal with the issue of Texas identity, past and present, um, how it's changed over the years, because it's also tied to history. I'm doing an episode, or probably two or three, about myth and mystique of Texas and how Texas history was very Anglo-centric at one point, and what the beauty of it now is you don't necessarily have to not tell the story that people used to embrace but there are so many different voices that didn't necessarily get brought in it's just better it's like a guy from down near galveston i forget his name unfortunately that's a, a community leader down there he said you got to look at it like you go have a salad the salad's good but when you bring in all the other different things all the other parts of the salad that's what makes it great and that's what our history is i think but you were you were kind enough to help, and your answer for Texas is the same thing. When I first came up with the question, I was like, well, I would answer home. And it's surprisingly, not surprisingly, really, a lot of people answered that way. But I just want to thank you for helping me with this process here. Oh, absolutely. I, I enjoyed it. it. It made me think. And Texas is complicated, and, and it's... The more I learn, the more complicated it becomes. But it is still home to me. And, and it's, it's 
part of my heritage and it's something that I'm, I'm proud of. I'm not proud of everything that happened, nope. but I'm proud of, I'm, I'm proud of this place. And when I talk about, I think I mentioned and towards the end of the book thing, this land is your land, but this land is my land too. And so I have a stake in the outcome yeah. and I'm, I'm proud of what, who went before me and what they did to, to make it the place that people, so many different types of people have called home for centuries. Yep. That's my feeling. hundred uh, percent. A lot of this stuff in the survey, I'm going to be compiling into different lists, uh, like my barbecue and favorite places <laughs> to visit and stuff like that. That is the fun side. Um, the one, two of the questions that stand out that you answered, if you remember, uh, one of the things was the best thing about Texas is the willingness to help a neighbor. And the worst thing about Texas is the willingness to vilify a stranger. And that's kind of what we're dealing with. Um, that's very good insight right there. Oh, I appreciate that. And, and, and when I was, I lived in Maryland for 18 years and, um, a lot of people had stereotypes of Texas and, and they would say, well, why are you so proud of being in Texas? And, 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 and again, I would say what I really like the most is how willing people are to help mm-hmm. other people. And, and one of the bills that we tried to talk about the legislative process, one of the things that I was the most proud of that came out roughly during the time I was there was something that's called the Good Samaritan bill. Mm-hmm. And there, there was in other states, there were stories about how somebody would, see a person stranded on the side of the road or have a flat tire mm-hmm. and they would they would pull over and then something unforeseen happened like an accident happened or tire blew out and then the person who was stranded would then end up suing the person who pulled over right. to help and and so this law made it it sort of minimized the impact that if you were your intention was to help somebody and something negative occurred as a as a as sequence in the in this story that you could not have foreseen, then you couldn't be held liable for it. Right. And and I thought that created more opportunities for people to go out of their way to help more. If if you want if if you want to help somebody, but you think, well, I don't want to I don't want to get involved because of whatever reason, then you're just not going to get involved. But if you if you remove some of the reasons, people, I think. At least I hope <laughs> a lot more people will be willing to do that. And, and that's been my experience in Texas as the, on the good side. And then on the bad side, the vilification of, of strangers, I think, is is not entirely a creation of social media. But that certainly has thrown a whole lot of fire, a whole lot of gasoline on those fires. Mm-hmm. That's very, very true. I'm not going to keep you much longer. Um, I might come back to you someday for to discuss some more of your answers. Uh, one of the questions, though, that you did answer, I put, if Texas had its own Mount Rushmore, who would you put on it? And you said Sam Houston, Stephen F. Austin, LBJ, and Bob Bullock. Would you comment on why you consider Bob Bullock as one of those giants that would be up on the, that, that symbol? Yeah, and those four people were strictly for political purposes. Right. They, whether positive or negative. And, and I got to, I, when I was in the legislature, Bob Bullock was the lieutenant governor when I worked on the Senate side. And 
And then when he retired, Rick Perry replaced him, and I went to work for Rick Perry. Mm-hmm. And th- I was one of his speechwriters during the full time he was lieutenant governor. And then when he became governor, I moved over for a short time with him to that office. But but Bob Volk's impact, I thought, created an opportunity for George W. Bush mm-hmm. um, because it gave him it gave Bush the credentials of working across the aisle mm-hmm. and. And Bullock was a Democrat, but he was really conservative. Mm-hmm. And and so I thought he was sort of the last bridge from um, Texas being entirely Democrat to Texas being entirely Republican. Uh, because he, I think if he had switched parties, you wouldn't have noticed that much difference in his politics. Right, yeah. But he, did, he didn't really, he, he had, let's see how I can put this, um, his capacity for tolerating nonsense was very, oh, really, <laughs> really, and and he he just it was it was really interesting to be around him. He was he, he knew how the process worked, and if there was if there were bills to be passed, those bills were going to get through somehow. He knew how to work the system, and he just didn't have a lot of patience with people who were there with an agenda outside of what he considered the best interest of Texas. Of course, there are different interpretations of what is best for Texas, but I think he genuinely cared about the state and didn't want national-style politics influencing what happened in Austin. Right. Well, Melvin, I want to thank you. And I asked you before the show started if you would be interested in closing the show out with, you have a poem at the end. And if you wouldn't mind reading that, and we'll we'll close this up. I would love to. I appreciate the opportunity. And thanks for having me on today. Thank you. I always look forward to talking to you, and hopefully we can do this again. We definitely need to. And I want to thank you, because I'm not necessarily the most confident person in this format. I was not a professional communicator in any way ever. Um, Just doing the podcast is something I could feel comfortable doing because it's just me and I'm just writing and sharing some stuff. But, uh, you gave me the confidence to have other people on. I've had a couple other people on and I've really grown to enjoy this, the give and take the back and forth and learning from other people. Um, and then, you know, I've got another interview coming up in I think next couple of weeks with an author that just put a book out on, a. The violence in the late 70s, early 80s against the Vietnamese in the Gulf area, Galveston Bay area, and the book is called uh, The Dragon and the Fisherman, and it's a very good book also. Wow. So uh, it's, and it, it's, it's a very important subject that I'll be talking about with authors soon. But you have helped me a lot by just giving me a little bit more confidence to, to get out of my comfort zone and... Uh, my favorite, very favorite episode before this one was with you and those other other two people, rather than just the ones I've done by myself. So, well, that's awesome. I appreciate you saying that. And, and who knows where it'll lead for you? Is as your confidence grows, your audience will grow, your influence will grow. Who knows where it'll end up? Maybe you'll be on. Who knows where <laughs> you'll be on national TV? Or <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think I don't. I don't know if I'd <laughs> like that. But I, I do appreciate you, and I hope to have you back on sooner rather than later. And uh, so we're going to close this out with Melvin Edwards reading The Strength of a Thousand Sons.
All right. Thank you, Michael. The poem at the end of the book is called The Strength of a Thousand Sons, just as the, the book title is. And it says, the legacy I want to leave, the life, the life I want to live, is the lesson of selflessness by taking far less than I give. The beauty of our differences, the potency of our cooperation, spread across every mile of this great united nation. The joy of helping others break free, creating safety for the frightened ones by mobilizing our collective strength of a thousand determined sons. Thank you, Melvin. That's some powerful writing. People go check out these, both of his books. And thank you, Melvin, for being you and for for creating these two wonderful things. And I'm, I'm looking forward to, do you have in mind any, what your next project might be? I don't, but um, I'm, I'm open to whatever, whatever, wherever direction I'm led. I, I talked about in the beginning about being inspired by inspiration. So where, wherever the inspiration comes, I'm going to follow it. I'm, you mentioned being influenced or being your, your confidence growing. Um, and your podcast, my confidence is also growing as a book because it's one of the scariest things about this is you write something and think, well, what if nobody reads it? And then if they read it, what if nobody likes it? Right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm getting confident enough to know that I've, I've got some good stories that need to be told. And, and so I, my, as my confidence builds, um, I, I think my stories will get a little more complex and, and so I'm, I'm going to follow that wherever it leads next time. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to everything you do. You are a talented writer, and you've got a good voice, and you carry a good message, and that's something that we definitely need, not only just in Texas, but everywhere. So thanks again, Melvin. Thank you. Thanks again to Melvin for joining me here on Texas History Lessons. It's quite an honor and a pleasure to talk to him. I encourage you all to go check out his new book, Strength of a Thousand Sons. You'll be glad that you did. And if you haven't already done it, go ahead and pick up a copy of The Eyes of Texas. Both books are worthy additions to your Texas history bookshelf. And we didn't mention this in the interview, but you can get his book through Amazon. You can get an electronic version to read on your Kindle or other electronic reading device. Or pick up a wonderful copy that's either paperback or hardback. I think both are available. So thanks again to Melvin. We're going to end the show by thanking everybody that's listening. Hope you enjoyed that. And thanks to everybody that supports the show on Patreon. And by clicking on the link to buy me a cup of coffee. When you get there, it's buy me a book, of course. And thanks for listening. As usual, the theme music is by Derek McClendon. So thanks to him. Check him out wherever you listen to your music. And we're going to end this episode with a song by Mondo Salas and his band Rosemond. One of my personal favorites that seems to be fitting for this show. This is Old Dogs. Thanks for listening. Take care of yourself. Take care of each other. Be kind. Adios. If the water in the rivers were to dry Would you take me to where they hide? If the angels hardly made it into heaven Would you sing me a 
Built to run on the road or come from a kind It's never been nobody and we keep trying to live But all we find is hard times and old dogs Without you, I'm scared of where I'll go. 